and they've got trees on the property, and it's, it's country. And so this guy was a little bit um, not used to it, of course, being in the city, and he had some trees, and he kind of wanted to get rid of them, about 12 trees he wanted to cut down. And so he's talking to a neighbor and says, hey, do you know anybody who uh, has you know, tree service, or somebody who can come and cut down the trees? And the, and the neighbor's like, you don't need, just don't spend the money. Just rent yourself a chainsaw and cut them down yourself. In a day, you'll have those 10, 12 trees taken down. So the guy's like, well, you know, I should probably act like I know what I'm doing. So he threw on his flannel shirt and his jeans and his topsiders, and he went over to the rental center, and he said, hey, I need a chainsaw. And the guy's like, well, do you know how to use it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know how to use these all the time. So he gives the chainsaw, and the guy takes off. And it's, you know, early in the morning. So end of the day, before the place closes, he brings the chainsaw back. And he's just, he's soaked with sweat. Just, it was a rough day for him. Not a whole lot of wood chips on him. I don't know if you guys have ever used a chainsaw. Hagen uh, and I took down about 12 trees at our house uh, one day, and there's, you know, wood chips all over the place. This guy didn't have any, but he was sweaty. And he was not happy. So he walked in, and he, he says to the guy, hey, this, this thing didn't work. The guy says, well, I mean, did you have a good deal? Were you able to get anything cut down? And he's like, well, I, I got through one tree. It took all day. This thing doesn't even work. The guy goes, oh, man, I'm really sorry. You should try to keep my equipment up really nicely. He goes, here, why don't you try this one? Because this one, I just tuned up. The teeth, you know, it's all sharpened up. It's ready to go. This baby will take care of you. So the guy goes home, gets up in the morning, gets a chainsaw out, goes out to his yard. That evening, shows up at the rental center, and the guy's like, so how did it work for you? And the guy slams on, this doesn't work either. You got a bunch of junk around here. And the guy's like, I, I don't know what, I, I really sorry, I don't understand. So he takes it and he primes it and he hits the uh, uh, choke on it and he, gets, he pulls on it and the thing starts right up. The guy goes, wait, that thing actually runs? You got to pull the rope? I mean, can you imagine this guy at his house? He's, he's got a chainsaw and he's doing like, this, working through the tree, trying to cut the tree down. Can you imagine what his view of the rental guy is? This jerk. They said this thing was going to work well. It's not working. Or is thinking of the chainsaw. People said it's supposed to be easy. This thing isn't even working. I can't even get through a tree. Or he might even think about himself. Was like, you know, all my neighbors said this was going to be easy, and now I'm looking like a fool because I'm doing through. It's taking me forever to get through these trees. Now, obviously, that's a joke. Uh, okay, all right. All right. Sometimes you have to explain what's a joke and what's not a joke, you know, so I'm just saying. But what's not a joke is, when it comes to Christmas, oftentimes, we have a, a wrong view of what Christmas is. And because we have a wrong view of what Christmas is, we then have a wrong view of who God is, we have a wrong view who, of who we are. And most importantly, we have a wrong view of what salvation is. The, the poor guy, if it was a really a guy who did that, and I really hope there's not a guy who ever did that. Um, but that poor guy, he made his life miserable by not knowing how to run a chainsaw. It was hard. It was miserable. But the same is true if we get the wrong understanding of what Christmas is all about. 
If we get a wrong view of God, ourselves, and salvation, our lives will be miserable. They'll be that much harder than they need to be. Because the story of Christmas is, is a, a, as the angel says, good news. It, it was something that God was doing in our lives. We've been in a series, Christmas Changes Everything. We've got one more week next week. I encourage you to come back, or this coming Sunday, come back for that. Uh, we've got kind of an interesting uh, take on this. Um, but what we're going to do, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. So if, you got the, if you're going to use the Bible there on the seat, it's page uh, 957. Otherwise, turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you use a device or a Bible, or if you'd like, you can just sit back and listen to my melodious tones as I read it off the big screen. I do this because my eyesight's bad, and <laughs> I don't want to throw on my glasses to have to read, so I like putting it up in here. But we're going to read uh, from Matthew chapter 1. It's, the, it's Matthew's version of the Christmas story, and uh, we can learn some things from Mary and Joseph, and that's what we're going to do tonight as it pertains to making sure that we have the right view of who God is, who we are, and what salvation is all about. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, child by the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's saying there, betrothed, we don't really use that word a whole lot, but in the Jewish culture back then, uh, people would get engaged, and their engagement was actually considered marriage, but it lasted for an entire year before they consummated the marriage. Now, I don't think we have any children in the room um, that don't know what the S word is, but there's a, they, come, they, they hadn't come together yet, they hadn't slept together yet, they hadn't had sex yet, and, but they were still considered married. Uh, married okay? And again, that's Jewish culture. Um, glad we're not doing that in the United States today. I don't know about you guys, but whoa, 11 months was, of engagement was long enough for me. Um, so... Anyway, so they're betrothed, so they're married, technically married, but they hadn't come together yet, they haven't had sex yet, and so Mary shows up to Joseph and has to have a tough conversation with him. I'm pregnant. And so you can imagine what's going on in Joseph's mind and what he's thinking, what's going on here with Mary, you know, who she's been with. And on top of it, her explanation is not that she's been with somebody, it's just that God's given her the baby. You know, so now on top of it, Joseph is thinking, okay, I'm not really sure, but now I'm really not sure about her. You know, she's not thinking right. She thinks God has given her this baby. So Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, so he's a good guy. He doesn't want her to have any undue issues in her life, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So in other words, don't, you know, make sure you're going to follow through with this. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, just like Mary said. She will bear a son, and she will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and this is the prophet Isaiah. So this is 700 and some years before Jesus ever was born. The prophet Isaiah, that's why it's embolded, because it's an Old Testament prophet, says this, he predicts something happening. He says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And now 700 and some years later, it actually happened. 
And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So let me ask you, how do you view God? Now, I didn't say how do you define God, because defining us just kind of tells us things about him. But how do you view God? Because how you view God will determine how you respond to him. And so there's really kind of two extremes when it comes to people's uh, perception or view of who God is. And so one extreme is that he's, un- he's unapproachable. He- he's a judgmental God. He's, he's all about rules, and um, you've got to do this and this, and if you don't do it, then you're going to be judged. It's, he's harsh. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is I was thinking more about this today, and I used a different word on Sunday. Today, as I was thinking more about it, really the other extreme is God is controllable. And what do I mean by that? We think of God as kind of our servant or our genie. That he's supposed to be making sure that I have everything that I want and everything that I need. And when life doesn't go the way I want it to go, then God's not doing his part in my life. He's not doing what he's supposed to do in my life. And so it's, it's kind of, we want to be able to control him, rub the little lantern, and have this genie show up for us. And, and most people kind of live somewhere between those two extremes. For Mary and Joseph, they're just normal first century Jewish kids, you know, probably mid-teens, and uh, they had the, you know, probably the same view as everybody else about who God is, that ultimately he's, he's kind of unapproachable. Um, they, they probably thought of him, you know, when they heard about in the Old Testament, when they were in school, and they learned about the Old Testament, God showed up from time to time. He showed up, talked to Moses. He showed up, talked to Abraham years before that. He showed up and he actually wrestled, it says, with Jacob. And, uh, and so God took on the form of a man. And you have to come back next week and we'll talk more about that. But he took on the form of a man, but he didn't take on flesh and blood. It was just a form so that, so that um, they could actually see God and not die. Because if someone were to look upon God, so God the Son took on a form. But really, when God showed up in the Old Testament, it was, it was a scary situation. In fact, Moses writes for us in Exodus. This, every time God showed up in Exodus, this is what it looked like. He said, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of trumpets and the mountain smoking. Anywhere in Exodus, actually in Isaiah talks about this, and the book of Revelation talks about this. Anywhere where the presence of God is, it's like that. It's thunder and it's lightning. It's trumpet sounds. It's, it's smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And if you read through Exodus, there are times where they thought that when Moses would go up to the mountain to talk with God and this you know, thunder cloud would come down, which was the presence of God, they thought Moses, he's got to be dead. There's no way that he's going to survive that. And then, of course, Moses would show up again and, and they'd be like, whoa, that's unbelievable. By the time uh, Jesus' day came along, 
the Jews wouldn't even pronounce God's name because they were afraid if they pronounced it wrong that he would judge them for that. So, first century Jewish people, Mary and Joseph, they saw God really as unapproachable and not personal. But what is, what is Christmas, or how does Christmas change our view of God? So, don't get me wrong. Uh, God's not like us in that sense. Okay, and we're nowhere anything like God, when it, certainly when it comes to His holiness and purity. And the God of the Old Testament is the God of the Old Testament, and He's also the God today. And, and so He deserves the respect and the reverence because of who He is and the power He is and the transcendence that the theologians talk about. He's transcendent. He's other than us. He's powerful. But Christmas shows us that He's, he's personal. He's empathetic. He's aware of our needs. He put on flesh. He's 100% man and 100% God. And He puts on flesh. He comes to earth as a baby. Why would God come to earth as a baby? He could have just showed up as an adult. Which would have been crazy anyways. But He shows up as a baby. Why does He do that? I think part of that is because He wants us to understand the, the relationship aspect of this. In fact, in Hebrews... We're going to talk about this more next week, or this coming Sunday. And this is, this is talking about Jesus Christ. And he says, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence. Look what, look what we can do. Because God put on flesh and became human, because He chose to identify with us, look what we can do in relationship to Him. We can draw near with confidence. He's not unapproachable. He's not terrifying. The throne of grace, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God putting on flesh, becoming like us, like us, He was born and raised by imperfect parents. Think about that. You know, I, I could tell you a lot of things my parents did wrong. My kids can't think of too many things that Kim and I have done wrong, but I can think of a lot of things my parents did wrong. I've overcome quite a bit. But Jesus was, a, he was raised by imperfect parents. There was sibling rivalry going on. He had brothers and probably some sisters. James, the one who wrote the book of James, is his brother, half-brother, you know, obviously because he came from God. But there was, I mean, can you imagine what was going on in that family? There's fighting going on, you know, boys will be boys, and so there's fighting going on, and, there's, and Jesus is over on the side going, well, I can't, you know, I, I don't do that. You know? And then the parents come in, and they're going to discipline, and they start disciplining the kids, and Jesus is like, uh, you know, mom, dad, I'm not sure if you're doing that just right. You know, I know better than you how we should discipline. I wrote the book on it. Jesus was the one at 12 years old that was teaching the religious leaders of his day. And again, you know, sometimes, and I've said this before, we sterilize Christmas so much 
and we get this little painted picture of what, and we're all like, ah, oh, all the warm fuzzies, mm, little baby, you know, and the cow's mooing, and he was in a in a stable where animals were. Anybody been on a farm? And and Jesus was laying in a feeding trough. I won't even let my dog face get near me. And I'm certainly going to put my kid in the feeding bowl of my dog. And this is cows and goats and all kinds of stuff. He learned a trade and worked as a carpenter. Of course, I was, you know, I was a carpenter, and so my dad said, Harold, you know, he's from Norway, yeah, you know, Harold, you, you hammer like lightning. Oh, thanks, Dad, you know. No, by that I mean you never hit the same place twice. <laughs> uh, thanks, I appreciate that. Jesus never missed with the hammer. He never cut a board three times and it was still too short. He had it figured out. The Bible tells us that he got tired and hungry and needed time with God in prayer. He says, like us, he understood how hard it was at times to obey God. Jesus in the garden. Father, if this cup, me going to the cross, if this could pass for me, if there's another way that we could save mankind from their sin, please, let's come up, come up with a different way. And he said, but not my will be done, your will be done. Because though he was tempted... And by the way, none of us are ever tempted by Satan directly. Jesus was. And so he's, he's tempted far greater than we could ever imagine, yet he always obeyed. This is the true God of the Bible who, who desires us to, to come to Him and to experience the grace that we need, the mercy that we need, the help that we need. At our time of need, and our greatest time of need is to have our sin removed. So the events of Christmas will, will change how we view God, but it will also view, change our view of ourselves. So let me ask you this. How do you view yourself in relationship to God? Again, there's, I think there's two extremes here. One extreme is that there's a, and I've talked to a lot of people, they're hopeless. They see themselves in relationship to God that there's, they're hopeless. There's no hope for them. They are too bad. They've done too many wrong things. They've committed too many sins in their life that God would even want a relationship with them, let alone forgive them, let alone die for them. And so they, they, they look at God that's hopeless. The other extreme is, is arrogance. It's people saying, I don't need God, I got this. I'm, I, you know, I don't, people who believe in God, that's just kind of a crutch that they, they do, and I'm good to go. The religious leaders of Jesus' day are people who thought that they were good to go. They didn't need Jesus Christ. The rich young ruler that we read about in the Gospels, you know, he thought, hey, I'm rich, I'm good, God must be blessing me, so therefore, you know, God must love me, because I'm I don't really need this whole religious thing, relationship with Jesus Christ. But understanding Christmas changes those views. To the hopeless person, 
we understand Jesus and, and God putting on flesh means that we have value, that we have hope. No one has experienced more pain, more rejection, more hurt, more um, emotional and uh, relational issues than Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that even Jesus' own family tried to come grab him at one time, thinking that he had lost his mind. His own family was rejecting him at one point, and eventually most seemed to come to believe who he was. But, but look what it says here in, in Scripture, Romans chapter 5. It says this, for, for while we were still helpless, hopeless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that's all of us. Prior to Christ, we're, we're all sinners. We're all ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. For you. For me. Much more than having now been justified by His blood and Every time I read that word, I tell our church family what justified means because I want, it, I want this to burn in our brains. That word justify is a legal term. And so when we stand before the judge, God, and we place our faith in Christ, it's as if Jesus steps in, in front of us and says, I got him. I'm taking and I've taken his hero's judgment. And then God says, you are justified. I declare you not guilty of your sin. Not for anything I've done, because I'm not in this other than the, I'm the helpless one. I'm the sinner. I'm the ungodly. You're the helpless one. You're the ungodly one. You're the sinner, just like I am. But if we're justified by His blood, by Jesus dying on the cross for us, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through who? Through Jesus. I don't know if there's a, a clearer way for God to say, you can't do it on your own. And God doesn't want you to do it on your own. He doesn't want you to even think you could. He wants you in a good way to know that you're helpless, that you're hopeless. And, and that's an awesome thing to realize. God doesn't say, get your act together, and then I'll accept you. No, you can't be good enough. And so he says, come to me, enter into a relationship with me, I'll forgive you of your sins, and I'll place my Holy Spirit into your life, and now we'll talk about whatever change that might need to be made. It doesn't happen before, it can only happen after, because we're not able to change ourselves. Only God can do that. To the arrogant, and I'm going to be blunt here a little bit, if you get to know me, I'm, I try to be tactfully blunt. But we live in a pretty blunt world. But if you're sitting here tonight and you're the arrogant one who says, yeah, this religious stuff, this God stuff, I really don't need it. You have to understand something. You're not good enough. There's nothing that you can do to do, like outweigh the bad stuff you've done in your life. It's just, it's impossible to do. I won't go into detail, but let me just give you what Isaiah, again, talking about that prophet, he said this 
centuries ago, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And he's talking about people who have sinned. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. He's saying from God's perspective, if you think that you doing good deeds is what's going to get you right with God, God is telling you that they don't work. Why? Because if you're going to do something good for somebody else so you can go to heaven, what's your motivation? Selfishness. Selfishness is a sin. So there's no way that we can be good enough to get to heaven because our good is motivated by me getting something and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to you, even if it's a good thing, for me to get God's attention. That's sinful. That's selfishness. James talks about this. This is Jesus' brother. He writes, Therefore God says, and he goes all the way back to Proverbs chapter 3, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are incapable of being good enough. That's why God had to put on flesh. And the last thing that understanding Christmas changes is our view of salvation. So let me ask you another question. What do you think is going to get you into God's presence? Or maybe another way of putting it is, what's keeping you out of His presence? Like, do you need to do more good works? I mean, so, so what's, what's, what's your angle? How are you going to get to heaven one of these days? For Mary and Joseph, the Bible says they were righteous. What's that mean? It, it, righteous is an Old Testament word that if you read throughout, throughout the Old Testament, anytime righteous is used, it means that they are right with God. And it's always based on faith. The most uh, well-known ones back in Abraham's day, way back in Genesis 15, that he believed God and God declared him righteous because of his faith. And so we know that Mary and Joseph were people who had placed their faith in God, and so God declared them righteous. But when they thought about a Messiah, they were really kind of thinking about a Messiah who was going to save them from their enemy, Rome. And they thought, well, the Messiah will come and we'll set up a new kingdom and Israel will be a great nation like it was back in the Old Testament days. And now they're hearing from the angels that no, this Messiah is coming to rescue them from something even greater than that, and that's the enemy of sin and of hell. And I could just imagine what they were thinking at that point. In fact, it talks about in Luke 2 that you know, uh, Mary treasured and pondered these things. Because this was new, new information to her. It wasn't new if they really truly understood the Old Testament. But it was new, and so it resonated with them. And well, how do most people believe they get into heaven or whatever good they think happens after life? Well, if you if you study any kind of religion, even some that call themselves Christian, it's always that man is doing something to earn God's acceptance or to get God's attention or to hit a certain measuring mark. And if he does that, boom, he's good to go. It's interesting though. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a choice. They could either believe God and have all their needs met and be, still remain perfect, have spiritual life and be perfect and have a relationship with God and have all their needs met and hang out with God in the Garden. Or they could choose to take the responsibility of being God for themselves. 
to make the choices for themselves, to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And, and then to deal with the consequences that come. So they knew good, but now they were going to know evil. The problem is they couldn't handle evil. But from that point on, every religion that man ever put together, it was all about man determining for himself what he thinks he needs in order to have a relationship with God. That all, sounds an awful lot like man being God, right? Because you just do a simple reading of the Bible. That's nowhere in the Bible. It's crazy when you think about it. When you start talking to people. And really what it is, is they, don't, they really don't want to have God over them. And so what better way is to distract themselves and develop a religion that allows them to do whatever it is they want to do and then tell themselves that they're good with God. But that's what man's religion does. Even some who call themselves Christian, if you really look at what they're teaching, it's man-based work. The problem is, biblical Christianity, the Christianity that's discussed in the Bible that follows Jesus Christ, is always man or God-focused. It's a work of God, not a work of man. The angel said Jesus came to save people from their sin. There's no mention of us in there. It didn't say God sent His Son to save, well, to help man save himself. It doesn't say that. It says that Jesus. This is why the angels call it good news. Yeah, we don't have to do it anymore, guys. We can, we can leave that up to God. In fact, Jesus Himself says this. Again, it just, it, especially when you're talking to people who call themselves Christians and they're living by this religious rituals and and all that kind of stuff, singing, well, if I do this, that, and the other thing, I'll, I'll go to heaven. God will be right with me. Jesus Himself is saying this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that's God the Son put on flesh, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Him, Jesus, shall not perish. It doesn't say whoever believes in Him and then does a little bit of something, something. Alright? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's heaven. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world at that time, but that the world might be saved through Him. That the world might be saved through Jesus. The Apostle John picks this up in, in 1 John. So, you know, 60 years after Jesus is gone, John's the only Apostle left of the twelve. He writes this, he says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so we might live that spiritual life through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God. See, man is always saying, See God? See, I, I love you. See? Accept me because I love you. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Right? It's not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be... Now, this is a big word. And I got a little bit of a speech impediment. So, to be the propitiation... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Which means substitute. Why did not put substitute in there? I don't know. The propitiation. So, what you could do, like if you're at work and somebody needs a break... Excuse me, may I be your propitiation? <laughs> You have to do it with a little bit of an English accent. Okay? So, propitiation. You know, <laughs> you know do that. 
And then they'll be like, where's our boss? Because you need to get fired. That He'll be our propitiation, our substitute for our sins. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, they put His body in the tomb. But you know where His spirit went? To hell. To pay for your sin and for my sin. He's the only one, because He's God, who can die an eternal death for each individual person who's ever lived. And then He rose from the dead. Why? Because He's God. And He was reunited with His body a glorified body. So he defeated sin. He defeated hell. And God's saying, you can let Jesus be your substitute so you don't have to spend an eternity there. And just put your faith in Him. Just say, I believe that He died on the cross for my sin. And God says, I'll forgive you of your sin and I'll place my Holy Spirit in you. And Again, we can't get into all the details, but the Bible says that we're adopted into God's family. In fact, Thursday nights we have a Bible study at 7 o'clock and we're going to, guys, we're going to be doing uh, Ephesians. And in Ephesians, it talks all about how the Holy Spirit's our guarantee that we're going to go to heaven one day if we place our faith in Christ because God the Holy Spirit is going to take us there. Again, this is why the angels describe Jesus' coming as good news. Because He wipes out the bad news and he's the only one powerful enough. It's not like God's sitting up there going, oh, uh, let's see, how can we make man's life miserable today? He's the only one who could do that. And he did it for you and me. So final question. We're going to go home. My family, we're having our gift exchange tonight. And I guarantee you, if I even get a gift, if I get one, I'm opening it. You can bet your bottom dollar. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. That's my son back there. Bet your bottom dollar. I was telling the people on Sunday that we had a white elephant over at Justin and Ellie's house. and um, I literally got a white elephant. Yeah, thank you, Ray. I appreciate that. Well, point being, when you get a gift, you take it and you open it, right? And if, if, I, if you gave me a gift and um, then I tried to do something, grab my wallet and try to find a couple dollars to hand you, here, can I pay you for it? No, no, Harold, it's a gift. You're the best pastor ever. <laughs> Thank you. If I showed up at your house, hey, listen, you gave me the gift the other day, and so can I wash your car? You'd be like, yes. No, no. You'd be like, no, no, don't. I don't want you to wash my car. I don't want you to, you know, vacuum the house. I don't. I gave you a gift because I, I really appreciate you. God's offering you a gift that you just simply need to accept. And then say thank you. Because that's what gifts are. Why? Because He loves you. And He loved me. And He showed that by God the Son putting on flesh, coming as a baby, living a perfect life, and then being our substitute. That life and His death is a substitute. Our substitute. 
We're going to close in a song, and the band's going to come up. You guys can go ahead and come up. We're going to close in a song, and during that song, we're going to uh, light our candles, have a little candle lighting service, ending to our service. Um, so somebody's supposed to bring me a match or something. What do we got? Oh, down here. Thank you. Appreciate that. So I'll, I'll get mine lit. Watch how coordinated I am. Hey, now. Look at this. Nice. I'll have you stand in a moment. but So we're going to close the service with a candle lighting. Hopefully everybody has a candle. I'm going to start here with Ann and, and over here with Dan. Ann and Dan. And then they'll pass it on. But during that time, as the band plays and as we're singing the song or we're thinking about the song, if you're here this evening and, and you've never accepted God's offer of salvation, it's very simple. You just simply need to say to God, your heart to His, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm hopeless and helpless without You. Would You please forgive me of my sin and I'm trusting that Jesus is my substitute. Thank You for the gift of salvation. And when you do that, there's a spiritual transaction that takes place where God forgives your sin, removes your sin, places His Holy Spirit. Now you have spiritual life. And you have Him in your life from this day forward. And He's going to take you through the issues of life, the frustrations of life, the difficulties of life. He's going to teach you about Himself as He does that. He's going to use you so that other people can see the incredible God that you worship and that you've given your life to. And then when they ask you, hey, what's going on? How do you handle that tragedy, that difficulty? Well, you know, it was rough, but I, I went to God with it. And God was so gracious and He helped me and He gave me a church family to help me. And He gave me, you know, I was thinking about how to do certain things and I had the, the, the courage to, and I can only say God gave me the courage to make that decision or do that thing. And then when we come to an inevitable day and we breathe our last here, he takes us to heaven. It's an awesome, awesome gift. That's the message of Christmas that so many people don't understand. And many people who call themselves Christians have forgotten and been distracted by other things. So during this song, if you need to do business with God on that, do that. Your heart to His. If, if you need to, you want to talk to me, I'm going to be in the back. And you can feel free to come back. Some people have done that in the past. Just come back and talk to me and we'll go find someplace quiet if necessary and talk and pray together if necessary. But go ahead and stand. And let me go ahead and I'll get Anne's candle lit. Can we get them?